Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday evening, I guess, getting there. And uh, I'm going to do the Parsha, which is Baloscha. This uh, podcast is being sponsored by my good email friend, now friends by email. That'd be uh, Al Sherman, Professor Al Sherman in Minneapolis. Many thanks. Uh, this probably in tribute to his relatives from Hungary, from Tisa Eslar. That doesn't mean anything to most people, but that's where there was a very famous blood libel case in the 1880s. But that was when Hungary had a liberal government, so, uh, and I won't say it had a happy ending, but it didn't have a bad ending. Uh, but anyway, thanks very much to Al Sherman, and here we go. Uh, we are looking at uh, Parsha Baloscha, and to tell you the truth, because it was Al Sherman, so it made me think along certain lines. Now I'll tell you, you know, because things jump to jump at you or don't. I don't go and prepare. Now, um, in the beginning, a very famous image, uh, I don't even have a comment here. At the beginning, there's a very famous image where it's a Baloscha Saneris, a Mulpane Menor, as everybody knows. And that is interpreted to mean uh, that the, uh, the, the candelabra, you know, the menorah, the Mishkan, the base of Migash had um, seven uh, lights altogether, three, three, and one. Three on the right, three on the left, and the one in the middle, that's the Shechina, the middle one, near Hamaravi. And um, the three on the right and the three on the left, El Mulpane Menor. So what that means, I think many know this, is that the candelabra uh, consists of a big fancy thing with a bunch of bowls, seven bowls. And the bowls are filled with uh, oil and um, daily, and uh, you put wicks in them. It's not like a candle you stick in a wick. So the question is where exactly you put the wicks, and the answer is El Mulpanea Menorah. So the three on the right, you put the wicks, um, arrange them so that they're burning, but they're facing towards the center. The same thing on the left. The three on the left are facing the center. So the ones on the right, if you follow what I'm saying, are facing left. And the ones on the left are facing right, which is just a very interesting image. Now, obviously, we're dealing over here with a phenomenon that is, it's a big mitzvah, but it's purely symbolic. Purely symbolic. As the Chazal say, V'chila Orahutzar, God does not need light. We're talking about a piece of furniture that is in the base of Migash and the Mishkan and what they call the Kodesh. Not the Kodesh Kadashim, correct? And the Kodesh is just a big room before you enter the Kodesh Kadashim. And it has three pieces of furniture in it, if I recall. Uh, one is the uh, showbread, the Lechem upon him. And one is the, the uh, Mizbech Hazov, the golden altar for the spice rituals, the Ketoris rituals. And the third one is, um, what we're talking about, is the menorah. So menorah is supposed to light the room, I guess, I suppose. If a coin goes in as they're supposed to every day to clean out the lights, so they're going to see light. Well, that's kind of tautological, you know, I mean, one, to fix the lights, you have to see light to fix the light. What do you need the light for in the first place? Nobody ever goes in there. Well, you see, it's not true. The coin goes in there for the spice ritual. If you don't know what that is, just get a, um, I'm serious now, get a uh, picture Mishnayis of, hey, you guys are now learning uh, Yuma. They should, excuse me, explain all this in the Dafyami, I suppose. But if you want an old-fashioned way, I'm a big fan not only of Nakudas, but of cartoons. Uh, you'll be surprised to hear 
and get those red Mishnas would have the cartoons in them, those drawings, and the one on Yuma is particularly good in my opinion. You've seen around, you know, it's the red one they have for kids to learn Mishnahis. It's quite good. And you can see the, uh, you know, uh, uh, how you sprinkle the uh, uh, the Ketoris in such such a way on the spice altar, on the golden altar, in that room of the Kodesh. And the Menorah is there giving life for that. I suppose it's for that. But nevertheless, it's a little bit strange because I think it's open. There's a, uh, there's a door that opens so you can see. And anyway, there's light there. And so the question is, God does not need the light. He created light. By he or, remember that? So, um, so what's it all about? And therefore they give, you know, various, so that sets the tone for a host of homiletical and, uh, drushy, um, meanings. In other words, it is symbolical. And the question comes, what's the symbolism? That's a perfectly valid approach. And, uh, uh, therefore it's a happy hunting ground for homileticians. Uh, this, the three, three and one in the middle represents this. Represents that. I have in the past, as I recall, given you Abishitzes, because that used to be my favorite uh, for a while. And that is, if you look in the Yairus Devash somewhere, he has a speech in which he says that the um, that the three on the right, three on the left, and the one in the middle represent the seven Chachmas. So it's basically a Torah in Derek Eretz type approach. Even though Abishitz lived in the early 1700s and Sansa Rayflurge wasn't born until a century later, my dear Percursors, and we understand Abishitz, people don't know, had a law degree of some sort or another. I don't know how he did it. He obviously did CLEP tests or something like that. Um, I don't believe he sat in uh, law school. And it didn't work quite that way. And he was a very uh, specific kind of business lawyer. And we don't usually think of somebody like that with that. But he was. And uh, therefore, he wasn't unfamiliar with the secular studies. And he has this whole long speech that I know I have in some podcast uh, a year ago, two years ago, whatever it is where um, he actually delineates at length the different Chachmas, making the following point. It's not simply the Torah is okay, a firm Jew is okay with secular studies, but that the Torah itself requires a certain amount of secular knowledge. Uh, for example, you have to know math in order to calculate the cities of the Levium, and uh, you have to know the art of koch, cooking, or whatever they call it now, culinary, in order to make the Ketores. Obviously, you have to know astronomy in order to do the stuff, and so forth, right? So in other words, to run um, the uh, the Torah itself, uh, it's assumed by the mitzvahs, nature of the mitzvahs, or many of the mitzvahs, that you understand a certain amount of science. And that has to be learned as a science. And um, and therefore, that shows you the Torah is in favor of um, secular studies. I repeat, his argument is the Torah is in favor of secular studies. However, it has to be El that kind of art. It has to be subordinate to the Torah. So astronomy is great unless you start coming up with astronomical conclusions that uh, the Torah is false or something. I don't know, you know, something along those lines. And I remember he talks about uh, geometry and all sorts of things like that. It's an interesting speech. However, we live in a very political era now, a politically polarized era, as you know. And uh, it's just very interesting to me that uh, the symbolism over here, I repeat, this is a symbolic mitzvah because God doesn't need the light. So what is the symbolism? I think the symbolism is a very interesting one of Claudius Yisrael because what it's saying is there has to be a, there there will always be a right and there will always be a left, and if you think at the image, it's actually even graded. There's an extreme right, a middle right, and a moderate right. You know, what I'm saying the one farthest away to the right from the center of the menorah, 
that's the extreme right. Uh, same thing on the left. The one farthest away uh, being the extreme left. And the, and the supposition is, um, and this is what's intriguing to me, I'm playing with this idea, I think I think it's true, and that is that we're portraying the idea of the Shekhinah being at the center, but I don't want to be glib about it. The center is composed, there can be no center without a right and a left. And the wicks uh, facing each other in opposite directions, to my mind, represent, I'm starting to sound like Rebbein Bechai or something like that, but this is what occurred to me. Uh, the wicks on either end, the way they're arranged, represent a kind of a pull. You understand? They're a pull. And so the center is pulled to the right, center is pulled to the left. That is normal. You get what I'm saying? That's normal, provided the center doesn't yield. So in other words, what's the meaning of a center? And I repeat, the Nehemarabi, the center, is the Shino. That's what they say, right? That's why the stories about it never went out and so forth. Now, that is the Shino. So that's the ideal, the ideal. So the ideal is the center, not that it's favoring centrism. It's not a Norman Lamb speech. It's, it's a question of what is the definition of centrism in the model of the Balosha, in the model of um, of the uh, menorah. At least I'm trying to make sense out of this, and I'm just sharing with you my ideas as I'm thinking of them. That's usually what I do. And uh, I'm thinking of the word equipoise, because something can be in the middle, or something can be the balancing thing in between two extremes and therefore be in the middle. So if something is pulled with equal force in two directions, it'll be in the middle. Uh, that seems to be, to me, the model of the uh, menorah, and therefore that's the model of Klai Yisrael, uh, which is just very interesting. And that certainly was the old model years ago. Yesterday I talked about uh, the Tshuva Miyava, Fleckless, and other times I talked about it in the biographies of famous rabbis of old, when they were rabbis of Kehillus in the old days, before the modern period, when everything came fractionated, going back to Moshe Rabbeinu, then the Metzius always was that every Jewish community, within whatever context you're talking about, had a right, a left, and a middle. Right? And the middle is occupied, it, ideally, I should say, the middle was occupied by the Rav and perhaps the Basin. Uh, you can't go too far to the right, you can't go too far to the left, or you would shatter the community. You understand? In the modern era, the left went off the deep end, and so the right reacted to that by going off the deep end, and the middle disintegrated. In American Jewry today, for example, there's no middle. There's no middle. Uh, the conservative Jewish movement in America, Terry Judaism, uh, claimed when it started that they're going to be the middle. But that was a lie. It was alive from day one. The conservatives is another form of reform. That's the bottom line. Right? I don't believe in terms, you know? So in other words, whatever the claims were is not true. But the claim itself, as an idea, is very sound, an old Jewish one. You can't put too far to the right, can't put too far to the left. If he, if, and every uh, Kehillah um, is going to have both, well, let's put it this way, it's going to have those, both tugs in both directions. I mentioned the other day, the Rambam says there never will be a Kehillah. Never was, never will be a Kehillah. They didn't have problems with immorality and Gila rice. It's just the way it goes. You get it? it, it it's not true if they're all to the right, you're not going to have problems with Gila rice and all to the left. It's going to happen. It's a human being thing. You know what I'm saying? It's a human being thing. Consequently, wherever you, any issue you raise, doesn't have to be about Donald Trump specifically or, you know, economics 
But whatever issue you're going to raise, there's going to be those to this side and those to that side. The job of the Torah, I'm speaking very specific now. The job of the Torah is to somehow or other manage that. This is what we call political leadership. I mean political in the sense of a polity. So the menorah ends up being an image of the Jewish polity. And the polity is you have those on the right, you have those on the left, and the middle is supposed to hold the, the vital center. The vital center. Now, um, that image that I just raised is an image of political stability. You understand? It is a value system that places the supreme value on political stability rather than on any particular uh, uh, point of view. Classically, the United States Constitution was like that, and that was its godless. You understand? As long as the Constitution is still held in that way, that's the godless. There will be times when the American political situation is more inclined to the right, and other times to the left. In our times, it's very heavily to the left. But as long as, you know, the center, that is to say the constitutional system holds, uh, then, you know, then, then it can hold out. If it doesn't, then I'll convey, then the whole country falls apart. Especially a country like ours, which is polyglot and all kinds of different groups, then it will fall apart. Well, this was true of Kali's role also. Even though they're one ethnicity, but there are a lot of different types. Not only were different Shvatim, but they're different types and always were. I don't have to tell you the Jews have a natural tendency to be centrifugal, not centripetal, to pull apart. And here you have and the word lahalos is very interesting because it's not so you're elevating it sort of and even it's a little bit homiletical but the idea is it strikes me that you know it's ideal right ideal I can't overemphasize how strong this ideal was was felt over the centuries uh, and now today it's I'm probably speaking to people so what's he talking about uh, because things have changed uh, so radically in our lifetime now, nah, in the last 150, 200 years, uh, the Nair Maravi has gone out. And instead you have the, the right and you have the left. It's just an interesting uh, phenomenon. This um, can spread into all areas of life. Uh, but there certainly is no maneuver there. Okay? There's no one image for Claudius Strauss. There's different images. Notice, by the way, it's very fascinating. On the right and on the left are three gradations. Right? Three candles, three candles, and one in the middle. So take, for example, on the right. There's like the extreme light, the middle light, and the, and the left right. Same thing on the left. There's the extreme left, the middle left, and the other left. Well, I mean, that's a, 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 a powerful image in which what you're saying is that, um, how should I put it? Within any situation, you're always going to have, you know, right, left, and middle. I don't mean that necessarily in the modern political sense. I want to be clear about that. Uh, even though it's tempting to do that, and I may do it anyway, but for those of you who don't know, the modern terms, right, left, and center, go back to the French Revolution, okay? In which the conservatives in the French Assembly sat on the right, the liberals on the left, and so forth. So that's where we get in modern ter terminology. These guys are right-wing or left-wing or so forth. But putting that aside, there are going to be, in any given situation, those who stand on one side of the issue, those who stand on the other side of the issue, and it's existential. I'll just give you one example that jumps to mind. Jumps to mind. You used to have Kahillas? Yes. Um, the Torah wants Kahillas? Certainly from the Gemara, it seems that way. Okay, fine. There's Kahillas. Wherever there was a Kahillah, throughout the history of Kalah Yisrael, 
There has to be some way of taxation. Because after all, there's a budget involved. Somebody's got to pay the Dayanim. you got to pay a cemetery, a mikvah, you know, uh, you know, basic stuff like that. You had to pay taxes to the government, and so on and so forth. So wherever there was a, a, a Kehillah, it could be Constantinople, it could be California. Well, not in America, but, you know, uh, uh, Vilna, or uh, Berlin, or Rome, or uh, Cairo, or anywhere like that. And hundreds of other places. There were Kehillahs. And each one of these kilos in the old days was autonomous and coercive. So that meant that, among other things, they were into taxation. You understand? And now the question becomes like this. In Jewish kilo, according to halacha, etc., etc., how do you do your taxation? Well, I'll tell you right away. Even those of you who are not too quick on the draw, after a minute, you'll see, there's automatically going to form, shall I say, a right and a left. One wing of opinion and the other wing of the opinion. Obviously, the two opinions are going to be based on what they consider to be the proper form of taxation. Those who are poorer are going to be in favor of a progressive form of taxation. After all, I should only pay a little because I don't make a lot. You should pay more because you got a lot. Those on the other side, the rich people, are naturally going to say flat tax. Everybody should pay the same amount because it comes out better for them. It's not conservative or, or, or liberal. It's a natural. You know what I'm saying? It's natural. And um, uh, so what's the right way? There has to emerge. And there always had to emerge. Within the kale or within the larger cholesterol. Some way that you have a certain, what shall I say, consensus. So the center is, is the consensus opinion. In order to get a consensus, the wicks have to be you know pointing towards the middle. That is to say... You have to be able to give and take. You have to have a compromise of some kind or another. Nobody gets 100% what they want. Everybody gets a piece of what they want. And in the worst case, nobody gets what they want. So we're even, Stephen. But it has to be. Otherwise, how does the Kehillah go? And I can tell you right now from history that there were Kehillahs in which it didn't happen. In some places, the right wing seized the power for, in, in one underhand way or another. Some places, the left wing seized the power in one underhand way or another. And there were unbelievable tensions in the Kehillah. And many times they were in mid-potates. And the history of Kalal is replete with these ideas. They're often mentioned in the Shalos and Shubas, especially in the Shalos and Shubas, at least as I recall, in Spain in the uh, 1200s, 1300s. You see this a lot in the Rajah and the Rush. Uh, there's even a book about it that talk, has many citations, if you're interested. It's called uh, The Jews in Spain, I think, by Abraham Newman, 1940, from the Jewish Public Gain Society. He, used to be, he was a conservative rabbi, he was the head of the dropsy, but he did a lot of homework, especially in the response to literature in Spain in the 12, 1300s mainly. And uh, there were a lot of communities that fell apart. Because it's got to be on Mulpanam, Nor Yoshua, and Nervous. So if there's a Rav or a Besden or something like that, um, there has to be somebody who's able to adjudicate, adjudicate is not the right word, to create a consensus. Because if you adjudicate in some way that you know, it, it, it just uh, vitiates the right or the left, and then you have a bad a bad situation. Moshe Rabbeinu was always trying to deal with this, right? That's why he's very hesitant to be violent in the Korach story, until he had to. That's why he took a lot of junk off of them. It would have been the easiest thing for Moshe to uh, to do a Korach. What do I mean by that? That's what rulers usually do. Moshe would have had um, his team in all the different tribes, Anybody who's on the Moshe team gets extra points and the perks and things like that. I mean, there's ways of doing this. You understand? Moshe did not do that. Okay? 
Korach did it. Moshe did not do that. Because Moshe had the idea, El Mulpanim Neshiros His job is to get everybody on board and agree to the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, position, even though it might not be ideally what he himself wanted. It might not be ideally what he himself wanted. And um, and this is who Moshe Rabbeinu was. And, and at the end, he got the Jews where they had to be, right? He didn't get to Israel, but he got them there. Uh, but it was, and it was very painful. And it would have been easier, probably, if Moshe would have set himself up as some kind of a dictator. The guy was tall and strong, and he could take on anybody. And, you know, uh, he was fearless. And uh, he could have made them quake. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Because he wanted something in which he tried to set an example for posterity. I think Moshe and God, you know, were saying, above all, you need political stability. You need stability among the tribes. That's why last week in Parshish Nazo, every tribe goes over again the same thing. You know, over and over again. Because the Icarus thing is to have the stability. Now, ideologues, the candles on the right and the candles on the left, particularly the candle on the far right and the candle on the far left, are angry. Because to them, why do they occupy the far left? Why does he occupy the far right? That position itself shows you that this person is, you know, extreme in, in their views. Whether it's on taxation, whether it's on cautious or anything else. Like I said before, I'm not using the right and left in the classic, necessarily classic sense of the French Revolution. You can, but you don't have to. It could be on any issue, right? Over the history, Claudius Rowe, you have thousands of issues. And the question is, how do you talk to work it out? The Torah demands that even the far right, the wick has to be facing towards the center. Even the far left, the wick has to be facing towards the center. To me, it's very striking. You know what I'm it's very, it's a very striking image, uh, and it's certainly true. Uh, if if you want to hold something together, then even the ones on the extremes have to be committed to the ones in the center, which means that the one on the extremes are usually not going to get what they want; they only get a piece of what they want. But getting a piece of what you want with stability is getting is better than getting all you want without stability. Now, I just said something which is contradictory to the hashkaf of the revolutionary. The revolutionary says that the whole thing be turned upside down and let my goal be advanced. Get it? That is the philosophy throughout history of the revolutionary. The idea that I advocate, the cause I advocate, is so important. It's more important than the political stability. And that's how revolutions have popped up throughout history. But usually, if not always, they never work out. You don't end up with the stability and you don't end up with the advance. Now, you know, you and I could debate this, and it's, I, I don't mean that to be funny. It's a very in, in, interesting and intelligent debate one could have in history and currently. Uh, but, uh, nevertheless, I think that the, the terrorism is, is siding with what I'm saying. And um, and by demanding that the candle, that the wicks face the middle, it's, it's trying to send a message to arrest the, the, the pull towards the extremes. Now, I'll tell you where we're seeing this now in America, for example. Uh, there have been times in American history, uh, you know, 19th century, whatever, when in certain ways things were to the right. At least in certain ways. Demises, the whole American history has been to the left, but nevertheless, certain ways to the right. Uh, but they didn't push it. I would say the history of the right in America, I'm not talking about the nutball right, the uh, Nazis. I'm talking about conservatives. You know, um, 
the general direction is not one in which um, it's always pushing farther and farther to the right. But you and I see in the left today, in our lifetime, and today, is constantly pushing farther and farther to the left. They're coming up all the time with new um, demands, especially in the uh, area of social relations and things like that. And now based gender identity, oh my God, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the sexual business, doesn't stop. Doesn't stop. If you do this, tomorrow I want more. If you do that, tomorrow I want more. If you do that, tomorrow you want even more. It's it's a, it's a never-ending dynamic. That is the kind of thing that take a country down. Because there's no equipoise. There's nothing in the middle to hold it all together. If there's a, a thing of saying, this is far we go, but then you don't go farther in order to gain a consensus. Once you gain a consensus, an honest consensus, and not a forced consensus like you're doing now. People are afraid to say what they want to say because they'll lose a job or something like that. But if it's an honest consensus, they can go farther because then the middle has shifted. But if the middle hasn't shifted really, trying to pull it even farther, then what you're saying is, uh, the heck with the middle. Um, I just, we, we want Our idea is so important, even if the whole thing falls apart, you know, uh, you know it, 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 it's worth it. Or as the current slogan goes of the uh, glitterottery, no justice, no peace. Interesting. No justice, no peace. So no justice, then there's war. So what you're saying is you're destroying the political stability. Then there's no mulpaneum, no yeshiva's nervous. That's not the Torah's message. That's not the Torah's message. Uh, the, the, all the wicks have to be facing towards the middle. You have to be committed to the high idea. There will existentially always be people who see things differently. It could be in a shul, it could be in a family. It could be in, in a polity. It certainly is the case in Israel. Okay? Uh, what should I say? We're going through tough times in Eretz Yisrael. I'm not prepared to say that the extreme left, extreme right, wants to, you know, throughout the middle, throughout the whole state of Israel. But they they push pretty far. You understand? And it's very dangerous. There was a time when I was young when people used to make fun of the American political system and say it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee. They're all the same. Democrats and Republicans are basically the same. It wasn't true, but I know what they mean. There's a lot of overlap. This was made fun of by ideologues, but actually it's a plus, right? Because it means the primacy was of stability. Stability means you can walk on the street, nobody shoot you. You can walk on the street, nobody jump you. Uh, look at the violence happened last week, you know, in New York and elsewhere because of the Gaza war. I'm talking about the United States of America. There's no sense of Mopanam nor Yeshua is a Now, uh, let me just speak about Jews. We don't have today, I think, any kind of sense of uh, stability uh, because there's action and reaction. Once the left, once the uh, anti-free Jews, let's say, I'll call it reform, I mean, that's not the right word, but let's just use that word. Once the reform 200 years ago said, we're pulling away and we're not facing the middle. We're just doing what we want to do. Uh, if you would face the middle... They would say like this, we advocate for these changes in Judaism, but we want to get a consensus on the part of everybody for that. If they did that, then that would be a different thing. Um, I don't say they would get it. Um, maybe they would get a percent or two of it. But, uh, you know, uh, they didn't do any of that. They just unilaterally said, we're changing Shabbos, we're changing Yanta, we're changing Kashas, we're changing everything. If you don't like it, lump it. So that means like this, they removed the wick. And instead of facing towards the middle, the wick is now facing towards the, away from the middle. Well, you know what happened? 
it all fell apart. Today, in other words, in subsequent generations, once the Reform established themselves as a, um, as a, a denomination and a group, and I say reform in a broad, generic way. Other groups did the same thing. Then they went back to say, now let's go have a menorah. So, for example, is this very interesting to me? In this day and age, what bothers the non-fraud movements in Judaism more than anything else is the complete delegitimation on the part of the Orthodox. Um, you're not Jewish. Your Judaism is not Jewish. Uh, your Judaism is not Judaism. It's very offensive. You see? What do you mean it's not Jewish? It's what I choose to do. So the modern feelings of autonomy, that radical autonomy, which are taken for granted in the modern American culture, uh, are at variance with, uh, with the Jewish tradition of the menorah. But now they want to claim the authority of the menorah. And so somebody who could be some tutti-frutti type whatever, so he says, I have to be included in this uh, and I demand the sanction and the legitimacy of the menorah. And then the firm say like this, it says, no, you, you, you moved your wick away. You can't, it's too late to move it back in the other direction. You see? It's too late to move it back in the other direction. And they say, no, it isn't. That's the heart, as I see it, of the problem of, among Jews today. So it turns out, at least in my analysis, that the uh, image of Balos Chesaneros, El Mul Paneha Menorah, Hiroshima Saneros is a, a hot-button issue in our contemporary sociological uh, controversies that uh, characterize and paralyze American Jewry uh, in very interesting ways. Um, the Orthodox are going their own way. Uh, the, 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 there's lip service sometimes given to the menorah. The federations talk that kind of talk. Uh, but they talk that kind of talk even as they... Um, move in the other direction. You understand? Even as they move in the other direction. So, it's typically, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, they used to call it neo-Hasidic. You know, it's, 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 it's just interesting that on the one hand, um, you reject the discipline of the menorah model that I just described. On the other hand, you want the authority and the, uh, the legitimacy afforded by the menorah model. Uh, the inability to uh, to get this has has lain, in my opinion, at the heart of so much intra-Jewish politics, Jewish internal politics, um, in our lifetime, and I don't see it changing. You see, because the left goes even farther left, and they have to gain this and this thing and here and this thing here. I'm talking about as legitimate within the uh, uh, Jewish uh, alternatives and uh, and other things as well, and uh, you know. The, the, the right dig in their heels. They say, we, we didn't move, you moved. And the left says, we moved, but now where we are, we're stopping for a minute. We want the legitimacy of their model. And uh, the, the the center therefore folds. It, the the Shekhinah doesn't like that. You see, that's not the way, it's not the model the Shekhinah um, did do. Um, I think that's food for a, a, a lot of thought and uh, is, an, is, is, is an organizing principle to analyze a lot of what goes on in uh, contemporary Jewish life, uh, a lot of the rest of it is sort of like, um, um, what's right, symptomatic of that. But the 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 the, the source of it lies in the uh, adherence to or the abandonment of the model of uh, of, of the menorah and Parshas Baloska. Anyway, that's what I think. 
And with that, once again, I say thanks to the Shermans in Minneapolis. And uh, we bid everybody a good Shabbos this time. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.